Hello and welcome to an Asia Rising podcast. The interview you're about to hear is between La Trobe Asia's Professor Nick Bisley and Assistant Professor Christopher Hobson from the School of Political Sciences and Economics at Wasada University in Tokyo. Their topic of discussion was the recent Japanese election, the victory of Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, and the fallout, no pun intended, of the Fukushima reactor disasters. Here's Nick Bisley. Glad I could be here in Tokyo with you, Chris. Thank you for having me. Why don't we start with the election in December? This was something that even you know, close Japan watchers were a little bit surprised with this sudden snap election that was called and which Abe-san has won fairly convincingly. So why did he call the snap election? Well, I think, you know, he was really in a, a position where he had an opportunity to strengthen his position within his own LDP party and I think it was really reaching a stage where so much of his premiership has been about building this kind of energy and momentum uh, and that was really, I think, starting to uh, drop off and the cracks in economics were starting to appear, scepticism towards economics was increasing and he sort of saw this as the best chance of being able to secure his position long enough to be able to push through some of the policies I think he's trying to get through before his term is done. Is it sort of building up political capital or is it an attempt to sort of buy himself some more time? I think buy himself some more time. I mean, the, the strange thing about Abe in a way is he's had a huge amount of political capital and I think especially compared to a lot of other recent Japanese premiers, he's really been in a remarkably strong position and he's got very grand visions in terms of restoring Japanese prestige, making it a powerful country again and these type of things. So he's got a very big program. It's really been about sort of trying to make sure that he can be in power long enough to be able to see through the types of changes which he really envisages, especially in terms of, I think, remaking the Japanese constitution and restoring uh, Japan's image, I think, as a kind of a great power. Yeah, and there was also a kind of sense of opportunism, wasn't there? Yeah, that, that the, definitely. The opposition seemed to be in complete disarray, and right, let's strike now. I think it was a combination of that with the simple fact that Abe's popularity was starting to decline. People are getting more sceptical of Abenomics, and to really kind of ensure his position, I think especially within his own party, this was the best time for doing that. So he won handsomely, at least first glance. He's got a lot of seats it looks like he's got four more years, which certainly, as far as I can tell, means that he will, assuming he gets to the end uh, of that term, he will be easily the longest serving Prime Minister in a long, long time, if not possibly the longest since the post-war period. I'm not 100% certain on that. There's a bit of, you know, if you dig into it, it's a little bit more shaky. How do you read the outcome of the election? Well, I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's a pretty weak mandate. You know, it was the lowest voter turnout. Uh, post-World War II. Yeah. I mean, it is also th- worth remembering that the previous election, you know, this was previously one of the lowest as well. You know, while Abe is claiming that he has a big mandate, you know, I really don't think that is the case. And if you look at what a lot of uh, Japanese public were saying, it was much more to do with the lack of alternatives. And, you know, the DPJ has really failed to present any type of opposition. And You know, there is actually quite a lot of frustration with some of Abe's policies, especially in terms of uh, the secrecy bill, the way he's been trying to uh, reinterpret the constitution. So there was space there for a genuine opposition, but the DPJ 
hasn't really managed to capitalize on that. And I mean, I actually think one of the lesser focused on consequences of the Fukushima nuclear accident was really the impact it had on the two-party system in Japan. And when you look at the nuclear disaster, essentially the DPJ got stuck you know, in the chair when it all went wrong. Mm. But basically all the policies and the regulations which created the conditions for that nuclear accident to happen took place under LDP rule. And unfortunately, the DPJ were in power and they were already kind of in a weak position. And I think that really discredited them as a kind of a, an alternative to rule. And they haven't really found a way yet of recovering from that. Yeah, well, might, might come back to Fukushima in a, in a few minutes because I think that's one of the big longer term puzzles. But the DPJ, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. The DPJ does seem to continue to have this systemic or structural problem of there's such a broad church. There's so, you know, everything from disaffected communists to disaffected LDP people and everything in between that, that kind of coherent discipline, purpose and function that you get out of parties, they have not quite been able to crack. So in some respects, you've got a kind of the reverse of normal electoral outcomes. In this case, it was we're not prepared to vote the opposition in. But of course, Abe's a nothing if not confident man. And of course, his spin doctors and the like will be presenting this as a thumping win. So what are the priorities for in the next year, 18 months? Yeah, it seems like uh, they're placing a strong priority on collective self-defence, finding ways to uh, reinterpret constitution. While Abe keeps talking about structural economic reform and there are some kind of bills which are being introduced, it seems like the focus is definitely more on security policy. Yeah, it certainly seems to be where his energy is yeah. and where his interest lies. And I guess they've got to turn that interpretation that was released 1st of July 2013, they've got to turn that into action. And as you know, I was talking to some, a guy from the National Defence Academy the other day saying he thinks there's probably at least a dozen, possibly 14 pieces of legislation yeah. that they're going to need yeah. to go through to make that happen, yeah. which I was a bit surprised by the scale. Just the scale. That's going to be hard work, I should think. Yeah, and I think they're planning on putting most of them through this session. But it does seem that Abe's popularity in many respects is fairly typical or lack of popularity is fairly common in most democracies, which is when the economy is performing poorly, his approval ratings down, his success is really going to turn on whether he can get the economic growth back. I mean, I think in the case of Japan, I think it is a bit different perhaps from some other democracies precisely because there is such a weak opposition party. I mean, I think we don't really have a functioning multi-party system in Japan. I think the reason why people are sticking with Abe and why you know, the LDP was able to be so successful at elections is because through Abenomics, they are offering some type of economic plan and they are trying to do something to push Japan out of this economic stagnation they've been in. But so far, Abenomics hasn't really been working. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon because he's not addressing structural reform. But at the same stage, until somebody else offers a credible alternative plan of, well, if not Abenomics, then what? I actually think he has a lot of space. The kind of the key issue is basically, I think the Japanese public have ultimately elected Abe and the LDP to fix the economy. And he's instead using that political capital to then go and focus on security issues, which is not the reason why he was voted in.
Yeah, because I think looking back at those polls last year, it seemed that there was a real corner was turned when the constitutional reinterpretation happened. Quite a polarising effect. Is that a fair interpretation or is it...? Yeah, well, and, you know, I actually think that Abe really kind of shot himself in the foot with that one. Because when you look at Japan's defence policy, you know, over the last couple of decades, especially post-Cold War, it's been moving towards a kind of a, a normal posture, especially with concerns about the rise of China, concerns about instability in the Asian region. You know, I think there are legitimate reasons for considering changing Japan's approach to collective self-defence. But Abe didn't really set these out or really explain them in a convincing way to the public. He, you know, basically used his position of power to force it through. And it kind of, you know, looks like a dodgy right-wing nationalist thing. So I actually think he really has done a poor job of explaining something which is probably more justifiable than it appears. And I guess when you marry that to some of the you know, less savoury right-wing views of history that he associates himself with, you know, difficult thing for a lot of people to swallow when the objective facts of constitutional reinterpretation of collective self-defence, if you go through them rationally, make a certain kind of logic. Just one last thing on Nabe. Uh, later this year, of course, the 70th anniversary of the end of the Second World War, it's very clear that Abe is going to make some kind of statement. What are you anticipating he's going to say in this statement? Well, and, and what should he say? Yeah. <laughs> you know, one must hope he will perhaps pick up on some of the negative pushback against the, the approach towards the interpretation of the war that him and his right-wing colleagues have been advancing. But most of the signs seem to suggest that he's going to continue on this path of trying to reframe or renegotiate you know how japan's war guilt is kind of understood and presumably move further away from the apology and, and from that kind of from, from the statement and the kind of sad thing in a way i think abe really misunderstands what gives japan legitimacy and standing in the world today japan having now been a peaceful power for 70 years and for being a, a relatively benevolent country has really i think restored its reputation as a peaceful kind of good citizen by continuing to return to this history issue i think is anything is really trashing japan's international reputation and undermining its international standing rather than strengthening it which is what he thinks he's trying to do i mean it's a remarkably good story to tell i think about japan and its transformation in the post-war mm. period from a fairly unsavory set of experiences with its imperial adventures to you know, the world's only pacifist power, a democracy that may not be a perfect two-party system, but, you know, there's the rule of law, there's free expression, there's peaceful transitions of power, there's, you know, all of the substantive things you look for, and there's, yeah, there's a remarkable transformation in a lot of respects, and yet what are we kind of focusing in on is this sort of raking over a difficult past and trying to sort of second-guess comfort women survivors tales and all that sort yeah, of stuff. I mean, it's it, pretty... You know, and if you, and if you look at Japan, I mean, this country has changed... They can change the constitution. Japan is not suddenly going to become a warmonger. This is not that kind of country anymore. But by Abe continuing to kind of poke at these history issues, it allows that interpretation. I really think it, it misrepresents what this country has become and the achievements of this country. And so I think it's really undermining. And it's grist in the mill of the communist in China, of the nationalist in South Korea and the like. 
Let's now turn back to something you mentioned earlier, which is Fukushima and its legacies. Very interesting to hear you sort of talk about how one of the really unexpected consequences has been the sort of damage on the political system. It's nearly four years on since the disaster, and you've written quite a bit about it. You know, first, I guess, there's the basic issue around power and energy. You know, they're looking at going back to some kind of nuclear power, having some sort of contribution into the mix. Where is this, do you think, likely to go? And what's the, what's the sort of mood in Japan, as it were, about nuclear power? Yeah, I think we've reached a position on, on the issue of energy in Japan where there's a real fundamental contradiction. Basically, the Japanese want to have their cake and eat it too. There's a very strong anti-nuclear sentiment that's very consistent, around 60%. At the same stage, they've also had multiple opportunities to vote anti-nuclear candidates and they've consistently voted in pro-nuclear LDP. They're concerned about economics, they're concerned about energy prices, but they also want to have basically cheap, consistent energy without having perceived risk of nuclear power. And there's this real kind of fundamental contradiction. And the especially anti-nuclear proponents have done a really poor job of explaining, well, if, if nuclear power is going to stay off in this country, what is a genuine alternative? Japan's carbon emissions have really gone up since 2011, and the nuclear plants have gone up. Trade deficit, like the current situation, is untenable. I think basically we're moving towards a position where essentially any nuclear reactor which passes the safety requirements is not too old, I think will eventually be turned back on. I think you're going to have at least 18 of the the 50 turned back on within the next probably two years. Okay, so it's going to be quite a a swift switch back on, as it were. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, well, right, what a lot of people don't really focus on is the economics of this, but... If you've got 53, 54 reactors, right, you turn all of them off at once. Japanese energy companies do not have the capital in reserve to be able to decommission all of these reactors at once. You know, these companies are also financed by Japanese banks. I mean, nuclear goes off, that's the Japanese economy off. So this is just not going to happen. It's completely not going to happen. You know, the real question is just how big a role nuclear power is going to play and to be a bit provocative, I'd even go further and say in a couple of years, instead, I think we're going to be having the question of what to do about reactors which are currently being built or you know, whether, in fact, new reactors need to be built. Nuclear is definitely going to remain part of Japan's energy profile, whether the public like it or not. To what extent do you think that the sort of disaster lessons have been learned from Fukushima, not just in terms of the nuclear stuff, more generally about these sort of big natural disasters. This is an earthquake-prone country. It's Mm. got hugely dense population, which has all sorts of compounding effects. So when these sort of catastrophes occur, is there are there kind of lessons learnt, as it were, that have been filed away, or has it just been all this is unique and gosh? Yeah, well, I mean, I think you definitely do have to separate the tsunami from the nuclear accident. And in the case of the tsunami, you know, I think on the whole. And in general, towards natural disasters, I mean, Japan is much better prepared than almost any other country. You know, on the whole, I think Japan responded relatively well to the tsunami. Um, but it's really the nuclear accident yeah. which they've really had trouble dealing with, and they still have a lot of trouble dealing with. And I think really where lessons haven't been learned have been to do with regulation and accountability, you know, so far. No senior management at TEPCO has been held accountable 
considering the human and economic costs, I think is, is you know quite problematic, to put it mildly. There are also problems to do with, for instance, one of the big issues with the nuclear accident were problems with uh, evacuation and the way evacuation was handled. There were a lot of problems there. And this hasn't been fixed. So, for instance, you now have the Nuclear Regulation Authority who are in charge of making sure the nuclear plants are technically up to scratch, so whether they have suitably high sea walls, the right kind of vents, these type of things. But they're not in charge of evacuation plants. And there's actually like a regulatory gap mm-hmm. and local communities are in charge of evacuation plans. And finally, you know, what do you think is going to be the, the major legacy or legacies of, of the disaster? Yeah, that's a tough question. I mean, I think you know, Fukushima was already a region in decline and it's very much cemented that. Increasingly, I think what now we're seeing is uh, the rest of the country, in a way, uh, forgetting about it. And for the couple of hundred thousand people which were directly affected by the disaster, I think they're going to be very directly affected for a long time, but I think the rest of the country is going to kind of move on. And where there is the big problem is, I think, ultimately, as a result of Fukushima and nuclear fear, we're going to have a very irrational and suboptimal energy policy in Japan at a time when, because of climate change, we really need a much better approach to energy than I think what we're going to see. And that seems to be reflected internationally. You see many countries, I mean Germany most obviously, that yeah. all of a sudden just ran. Yeah, if you look at Germany, like no nuclear means more coal. Mm. And that's the real problem. I think we've really moved to a situation where we now cannot have conversation about risks. And there's a really big problem of all energy policy and all energy choices involve risk. There's not enough discussion about different types of risk and which type of risks as societies we're collectively willing to take and which ones we're not. Well, I think this is a big issue in Japan. Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Chris. Thank you. That's Latrobe Asia's Professor Nick Bisley interviewing Assistant Professor Christopher Hobson from Wasadi University in Tokyo, Japan. You can follow both of them on Twitter. Nick Bisley is at Nick Bisley and Chris Hobson is at Hobson underscore C. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and please leave us a review. Thanks for listening.